Hello and welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I am joined by Canela Lopez, health reporter for Insider, who covers trans healthcare policy, transphobia, and trans homicides. Welcome in, Canela. Great. Thank you so much for having me on, Adrian. Ah, thanks for joining us. And so, Canela, according to the Insider database, 2020 was the deadliest year on record for transgender people in the United States. What is going on? Right, so the project did show that 40 folks, or sorry, 44 people were killed in 2020 alone, which is higher than any year prior. In our research, what we looked at were the different trends that really contribute to this issue. And what we're seeing is it's a combination of two factors. The first being that reporting is just getting better about these homicides. Unfortunately, many of the victims of these kinds of crimes get misgendered, whether it be by local media, whether it be by the police. And oftentimes, these crimes do go underreported. So better knowledge about trans people has made are reporting more accurate on it, which is good. But it's also showing that these trends are getting worse over time. For example, in 2021 alone, we're already at 22 deaths, which is we're not even halfway through the year. And we're halfway through the amount that we saw last year, which it really just shows that the pandemic has contributed to this. The you know ongoing problems of racism and transphobia have contributed to this matter. and. It's not really going anywhere. Yes, it sounds extremely troublesome and very deadly. And so can you tell us a little bit about these murders in terms of, is there a pattern here? Or is it romantic entanglement? Is it random hate crime, don't know the other person? Is there a pattern that we can see in terms of these trans people who are being targeted and killed? Definitely, I think it's important to distinguish that while some of them are certainly hate crimes and it's certainly committed by people who are targeting trans folks. An important distinction is that not all of these killings are hate crimes. It's also the fact that trans women of color in particular are very vulnerable in this country because of systemic issues such as poverty, systemic racism and treatment by the police. We also see that people are just more exposed because you know homelessness is a big problem for queer folks, specifically queer people of color. So having a lot of vulnerabilities at many different intersections are really what open the floodgates up to be for, for people to excuse me for folks to be attacked. So it's a number of factors. Yes, it sounds like it, and I would assume that. You know, having this pandemic didn't help with a lot of people losing their housing, their economic source. And I would, I would imagine since it hit people of color as a group just harder, that, that also fell very, very significantly on the trans community of color. Oh, absolutely. And in particular, even looking at how the Trump administration handled many legal protections for trans people. I, it definitely is fair to say that the attitudes of whether it be local lawmakers or federal lawmakers really contributed to the attitudes of people who then go out and commit these crimes. Even in 2021, we're seeing this massive wave of anti-trans policy and those kinds of attitudes when they're state sanctioned do trickle down into the general public and essentially say it's okay to target a group of people because they are more vulnerable. 
Yeah, and we're seeing kind of the consequences of that in the Trump administration and unfortunate rhetoric that they push. And we're also seeing a current attack on trans people in the trans community when it comes to athletes and women in sports. And so I guess, how do you see all of those attacks end up culminating into that bigger issue of potentially death? Right, absolutely. Well, I think it's really important to understand that um, these laws really do trickle into the bigger issue of homicides against transgender people because it's an overall um, attitude um, problem with the United States. So when local lawmakers sanction transphobia and in fact write it into law, it then makes it okay essentially to attack trans people for being ourselves. And the issue with that is that um, essentially all of these problems are connected by one root belief, which is that trans people are lying about who we say we are. And that is what makes specifically trans women very vulnerable to violence, uh, whether it be uh, street harassment, whether it be through lovers, um, it's something that is a larger problem. Yes, very much so. And unfortunately, as we see the numbers continue to show up and to show up at greater rates when it comes to homicides, deaths of trans people, you know, it seems to me that these numbers don't truly reflect the real number of deaths of trans victims. And why do you think that is? So the, the biggest problem that we, Madison Hall and I, my colleague who put together the project with myself, saw when discussing the trends was that Oftentimes because of the way local police report on these deaths, oftentimes what is reflected either in the birth certificate of the victim or the identification card of the victim is what's reported. So if someone doesn't have access, for example, to be able to change their gender marker on their ID, in several states it's very difficult to change the gender marker. So. Um, it's important to understand that when there are laws that are enforcing these difficulties in being able to change even legal documentation, it makes it harder for victims to actually be reported correctly. This also has to do with, we can see it in families sometimes, it isn't safe for a lot of trans victims to be out in general to their families or they don't have ties to their families because of you know the lack of education when it comes to queer and trans folks in general. So when a family isn't, you know, doesn't know the full extent of who their child is, they're most likely going to uphold whatever the police are saying and misgender them publicly. So then it just kind of gets chalked up and thrown under the table, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the individual's identity doesn't get to be recognized on that public level as it should be. And I don't think people fully appreciate the hurdles that trans people have to go through to be fully recognized. One of my best girlfriends is an attorney, she's a trans woman, and they still dead name her in court because the state in which she practices in will not recognize her as a whole individual by her identity. And so these things happen every single day and there must be change. And I know that you all are working very hard toward making change with the Insider Transgender Homicide Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely, so we decided to put the project together in December of last year because we had been seeing obviously this horrible trend that has been ongoing in our community. 
But 2020 was particularly brutal. Um, I think it was in October that it officially became the most deadly year for trans people on record. So we decided that it was really urgent to not only report on the individual deaths, but also look at it as a trend, especially because specific communities, particularly black trans women and Puerto Rican trans women are very vulnerable. So we wanted to do the work that the US government quite frankly, should already be doing but isn't of tracking these deaths and quantifying these numbers. And also speaking to the families of victims who so often are not spoken to when we discuss this broader issue of transphobic violence. The goal eventually of this project is to act as a service for different research organizations to hopefully build off of the project, look at these the trends in these deaths and be able to make use of it in some way. Because um, honestly, all of the experts that we spoke to about this matter said that the first step that we need to take as a country in addressing this national issue is to track and put names to this data. Because if the data doesn't exist, the problem doesn't exist on paper. Absolutely. And are you getting any support from local authorities or federal authorities or anyone at any level? Absolutely, we've actually had a really nice outpouring of support from local lawmakers. We've been retweeted by a few prominent activists, which is really great. And also for me personally, the most important approval is the from the families of these victims. Because so often these narratives get written by larger media organizations and oftentimes don't consult the people who it is impacting the most intimately. So I think that that has been probably what's felt the best about this project is that ultimate approval. That's very cool. And I know you are changing lives and making an impact. And so if people are more interested in finding out about Insiders Project and the work that you are doing, where can they find more out about the project in addition to more about you? Absolutely. So. Everyone should absolutely go check out the Trans Homicide Project, which can be found at insider.com. If you Google the Transgender Homicide Project, we are hopefully the first result. If not, we're on the first page of results at least. I think that they should also follow both myself at V Canela Lopez on Twitter and also Madison Hall. We're both journalists who cover these issues and really try and dig deep in looking at how this country approaches transphobia. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Canela Lopez, health reporter for Insider. We really appreciate all of your contributions also in your work in the project and continue please to uplift the message. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. It is Adrian Lawrence and I am back with a conversation. And now I am joined by Chris Stewart. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Brightbeam and co-host of the Eight Black Hands podcast. Welcome in, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you for joining us. And as I understand it, you know a little bit about critical race theory, which seems to be at the forefront of so many conversations today, particularly as it concerns school curriculum. So I was wondering if you can kind of tell the people, what is it? You know, critical race theory is basically a way, it's a framework for understanding how race as a construct has been weaponized over time and has become part of the law, the fabric of how we govern America, how we govern our institutions. Everything from the way that police officers 
our, 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 our um, administrating policing to communities, to how courts work and how schools work, how elections work, that um, racism is more than individual bigotry between individuals. But it is actually something that is embedded within our systems and we must root it out. CRT is the framework for rooting it out and it's under attack. Yeah, it definitely seems to be under attack and I know that um, critical race theory is very powerful in that it interrogates the role race really plays in our society and largely kind of looks at it through a legal law level and that it was Kimberly Crenshaw who kind of came brought it into being so to speak in terms of that uh, legal angle. And so generally it's my understanding that it is it's taught in law. And so why are a lot of these educators at the local kind of public school level concerned about it? Well, you know, it's it's got even further roots back be, before it was a legal concept. Out of the what came out of the civil rights movement was a lot of disappointment that all of the work, the good work that was done during the civil rights movement, didn't amount in the type of advancement and progress, socially speaking, economically, politically speaking, for people of color that was expected from the people that worked in the civil rights movements. Um, CRT became a way for saying, you know, the problem is deeper than we really thought it was. It's not just a situation where black and white folks are gonna sit next to each other and all of a sudden start loving each other over a period of time and then everything's gonna change. It actually was more deeply rooted into our institutions and people within the legal studies departments, people like Derek Bell and others who had had experience in civil rights started to look more deeply into the law and into the structures of our rules of society, the rules of the, you know, the, the rules that we live by and started to see that you could have things be very racist in our society without them looking like they are. They could look colorblind. The war on drugs is a great example of that. You know, passing a disparity between powder cocaine and crack cocaine, there are very clearly racial implications to that decision to make different punishments. But you could conceivably say that it was a colorblind policy, it really wasn't. Now, you asked the question about why are educators so upset about this? Um, they weren't. The short answer is that no one was really talking about this. There is a concerted effort of people who want a white ethno state and feel like they're losing ground politically to, to rush to the Capitol houses and introduce bills that are in search of a problem. There was no real problem. Critical race theory is not, there's not an explosion of it. In fact, the opposite is true. Many people color worry that our, our history, our real history is being whitewashed in public schools, that our kids are not being told the truth about how we got to where we are today. But yet you have legislators, by my last count, at least 12 bills either introduced or passed at the state level in states that are going to outlaw the teaching, the rightful teaching about things like systemic racism. It's it's amazing though that it's gotten so much coverage like two to three times more coverage on the right than on the left. So you know that it's a campaign and you know that it's not a campaign for something good. No, it doesn't seem to be that way. I do find it to be rather comical seeing these parents and whatnot, seeing the videos of them crying at school board meetings. I don't want okay. my child to learn critical race theory. It's like your child doesn't have the acumen level to understand it. It's not going to be taught to them. What are you talking about? Um, but unfortunately, I think as a product of that, that it's going to, as you kind of mentioned, it's going to further suppress more truth and information and knowledge under this whole veil that it must be CRT. And so where do you think people are going to go next with this? 
You know, I'm thinking it's going to start hitting the school boards next. You, you know, the first step is to get states and governors to sign laws that kind of start putting a chilling effect on classrooms, start muzzling educators, stop educators from teaching. Not just critical race theory, because I just want people to be very clear about this. Anything that looks like anti-racism is being thrown into this bucket called critical race theory. Anything around social, some of them, some of the laws have been very clear to not just say critical race theory is in fact, some of them say social justice programming. So a lot of things are being thrown into this one bucket. It starts at the state level and then next thing you know, you do have teachers that are being muzzled. And you have school board members that are being run out of town because they are pro social justice teachings. Dallas is a good case of that. There was a recent you know, suburban Dallas, recent school board election. The school board members and the city council members ran on being against critical race theory, social justice and social justice programming and they won. Like they swept the, <laughs> the room. If all Policy is local, you know what happens once those school boards start turning over and changing like that. The kids in those in those districts are gonna be robbed of real education, a real history. And they're not gonna be adequately prepared for the world that we live in. They're gonna be prepared for the world 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. <laughs> Absolutely, and unfortunately I'd like to think um, that seems to be something that's very commonplace in our nation. And then this idea of keeping people dumb. It makes them easy to control as opposed to giving them the knowledge and the information they need so that they can actually understand the world around them. Mm. And so where do you think this will go in terms of a federal level? Because we have Joe Biden in office. It seems like he's really turned back a lot of the things that Trump tried to institute, including you know, whatever he had passed that said we can't have critical race theory taught involving federal mm. contractors or diversity training. So I guess with this administration, do you expect any kind of involvement? You know, I think that's a great question. I think that there's still going to be attempts at the federal level to do what states are doing right now, but it's not going to go very far because you have Joe Biden in office. He did reverse some of the the mandates that came from the Trump administration to outlaw critical race theory within federal agencies and federal the federal government. Doesn't mean that we should go to sleep on it, though. We should be very very carefully watching the other ways that this manifests itself. I do want to call out though that this is not so much a policy. Policy campaign, I think, on the other side for them to win. I really believe that this is just a way to whip up their base in preparation for the 2022 midterm elections and to really like get white grievance, the white grievance machine going and the outrage farming going and getting like the keyword kind of keyword farming online to really bend to their will. Um, and I don't know that that's gonna work. I really do trust the American people that the majority of us are more sane than this. But when you're getting laws passed, I think is when we should all take things very seriously. And they are getting laws passed that put a chilling effect on speech. Free speech on a fact-based reality, on real history, on teaching kids about how their government actually works and how systems have worked well for some and haven't worked for others. That's a pretty big deal when you're literally getting bills passed to make people dumber. Yeah, and you know what? You have a lot more faith than I do because <laughs> I don't trust the American people to make the smart decision. Because you know we live in a system that enjoys fear mongering and creating an us them narrative. And as we saw all of those votes come in for Donald Trump at this last election, I just don't know that people can make the best decision for our nation collectively as opposed to feeding into their fears or maybe even their ego. 
But in terms of the future of critical race theory, has it had kind of um, an adverse response in terms of uh, in terms of not necessarily being quelled? That now there's a spark in people, you know, getting more involved and learning more about it. I would love to say yes. I would hope that that's the case. I would hope that more people want to actually check into what critical race actually is. As a matter of fact, anybody watching this who considers themselves an intelligent person, I would hope that you would go out and read for yourself what critical race theory actually is and do a little bit of study and come up with your own ideas about what it is. I don't know that that's exactly what's gonna happen writ large. And I don't think that we're gonna win this war with people who are already set to disbelieve anything that has to do with making racial justice come true in this world. But we can ask, you know, we can ask anybody listening and watching, especially when it comes to your schools, be thoughtful consumers of the news and of the truth of critical race theory. And when this gets to a school near you, actually stand up for the right thing. Make sure that your kids are gonna get a real history, get the true history. Oh, that would be something that I would definitely enjoy. Unfortunately, I don't necessarily know that that's gonna come to pass either, given how <laughs> much our world has tried to suppress the information and the history in the past. But we only have about a minute left. So is there anything you wanna plug or get out there before we say goodbye? No, you know, um, I my, my organization Brightbeam actually continuously puts out the voices of teachers, students, and parents to um, to find the the right path to equity to make sure that we're doing the best that we can for our kids. So come and see us, uh, brightbeamnetwork.org. We are always putting out um, content around uh, equity in education and in schools, and this is like one of our major issues right now. Awesome! Thank you so much for joining us, Chris Stewart. CEO of Brightbeam and co-host of the Eight Black Hands podcast. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you.